I find like a technology that is finally like ready. And now we need to make a product out of it. And so this is my personal sweet spot. And so this is like the kind of project I'm looking for is uh, like when all of the R&D has been done and like there's usually like one crazy person that like has an idea and everything. And then I'm going to take like all of the ideas and like actually turn them into like a product people are going to use. Hello, welcome to the DevTools FM podcast. This is a podcast about developer tools and the people who make them. I'm Andrew and this is my co-host, Justin. Hey everyone, uh, we're really excited extremely excited <laughs> to have uh, Christopher Shadu on with us today. So uh, Christopher goes by uh, Vejou, Vejou. How do I, how does that, Christopher? Vejou. Vejou, all right. Uh, so that's V-J-E-U-X. Uh, you've probably seen him around if you're a listener of this podcast. Uh, so Christopher works at Meta, been there for a long time, worked on a lot of projects that we know and love, uh, React Native, prettier to name two of of many um christopher honestly such a great pleasure to have you on have been a big fan of your work for a long time uh you know andrew and i started this podcast because we really love tools and we've both used your tools a lot <laughs> so this is uh pretty humbling and and appreciate you coming on uh but before we dive into the questions would you like to tell our audience a little bit more about yourself yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, this is one of the things is, uh, so I was in France, uh, like I grew up in France and I had no idea that I would like actually do all of those cool stuff, but I always like try to hack around and everything. And so yeah, this is also like a super humbling experience for me to be like in a podcast with you. Like I've watched like, uh, or like listened to a bunch of your episodes. So yeah, I'm really excited to be there. And, uh, and my goal uh, with this is to get like people excited about like tech excited about like building stuff, excited about open source. And I think this is uh, like one of my successes, like sure, like working on things, but in practice, like this is not, was never been like just me. It's like, like my super strength is like get people excited and like create communities around all of those projects. So I'm hoping this can help uh, with this. Yeah, before we drill into like specific projects, uh, you've worked on just an amazing amount of technology uh, over the course of the, your career at Meta. Mm -hmm. Uh, could you fill our audience in about some of those projects and then maybe after that go into how you feel about Meta's open source culture and how that still holds today? That makes sense. Yeah, so uh, the the ones I like most directly influenced, so I helped open source uh, React. I uh, co-created React Native and uh, Prettier. And uh, also recently I worked on Xcalidro, like a whiteboarding tool. And as part of like specific project, so within React Native, I uh, like came up with the idea of like CSS in JS, which was very controversial and like spawned like a lot of projects around the theme. I also implemented the Yoga, which is a layout engine that is now being used in a lot of like native apps and also like 3GS uh, kind of world. So those are like a few of the projects I've uh, like been involved in, like myself, like directly, but. Uh, Going to your like uh, points around Meta, one of the things that I've been uh, like very involved in is like how do we make Meta like uh, really good at doing open source? And so like the origin story like for me personally is like I always have been like uh, curious about like hey what is the latest tech and especially for front end. And I thought when I joined Meta like uh, right out of school that I had a really good idea of like what the like standard and the world looked like. 
but in practice, like I joined uh, like Facebook at the time and I was like super crushed because I felt like I joined a spaceship that has like all of those cool technologies and everything that nobody knew around in the world and everything, but like, like we were not sharing it. And so in practice, one of the things that uh, like Mark Zuckerberg has always been uh, like a proponent of open source. And so he started uh, in his uh, dorm, like using uh, PHP, Apache, MySQL, like uh, Memcache. And uh, he's always been uh, like really grateful for open source and like pushing for open source. And like all of the things I mentioned that I felt was spaceship was actually in the hack language, which is like our own variation of PHP. And so when I looked at it, uh, in practice, we tried to open source, but like the uh, like PHP like was not the like uh, most exciting thing, and like was uh, like if you were a PHP developer, like you were like a loser or those kind of things. So like this was like the mindset at the time, and the like the team tried, but like never really succeeded. And the the one thing that was very interesting is uh, we uh, worked on React. And in practice, React, uh, like one of the main thing people think about is JSX. And so it actually came from uh, our PHP hack stack, which is called XHP. And so we were able to like add like uh, uh, like uh, quotes, like uh, angle quotes uh, into PHP. And now we also did it for JavaScript. And now when React was released, like a lot of people saw React as uh, like this JSX thing and everything. But in practice, the way I thought about it was like a vehicle to like showcase and share all of the cool stuff that I've seen, like the, the rocket, like the spaceship uh, from that we've done in the hack space. And so one of this is uh, JSX. In order to be able to uh, actually do something like JSX, you need to be able to uh, change the syntax of the language. And so this is, uh, we uh, open source uh, JS transform and in practice Babel came at the same time and like we basically like promoted Babel and uh, in order to be able to use this. Then the second part is in order to be able to like transform the, um, the language, you need to have a build step. And in practice, I don't know if you remember the time, but like Angular, like one of the main strengths of Angular is like you don't need a build step. Like you write thing in HTML and then like in real time is going to take your like uh, customized DOM and it's going to like translate it and like template it and everything. And so like with JSX, you needed to have uh, like a transform step and build step. And so we also like pushed for um, a webpack. And then one of the thing at the time is uh, like, okay, now like this is a very serious application. You also need like a linter. And so this is where like uh, we pushed for ESLint and uh, like uh, ESLint also like started getting in adoption with this. And th then there's also like the uh, typing around this. Well, like, oh, like we push flow, but like TypeScript came around the same time. And like, okay, now like we uh, also like push the, the TypeScript. And so this is one of the things that I'm like super excited about is that not only like did we open source React, but we were able through this channel and this community to like open source or like ourselves and like push the adoption of a lot of standard. Like now we actually can do like real programming uh, on the web uh, with all of the tools and everything. And I like, I think like React ecosystem, like really like, uh, like pushed all of this forward. So this is uh, like the, what I like for the React ecosystem, like the thing I've been like most proud of 
is this. Now going back to open source, like this is for the front end. One thing you may not be aware is uh, like Meta is also pushing open source on a, also different uh, aspects of the tech. So one which is very interesting is uh, for the hardware side. So uh, if you think about like hardware and data center, like the, I think the thing that came to me from, uh, to my mind is that Google. And so Google like really pioneered like the hardware data center design, but the way they actually like uh, did it was like, this is our trade secrets. Like we don't want anyone to know what we're doing. And like, they like were like, uh, they're very, very secretive about this. And uh, Facebook did like uh, the complete opposite was like, Yep, they, like we are, like we want similar kind of things. But one thing to realize is that uh, in in practice, like a lot of the hardware cost is actually like the manufacturing, and the cost of manufacturing scales with the how many people are actually buying. And even though like Facebook slash Meta is big, we're not in the larger scheme of thing like a really big buyer. And so now if we're able to open source like all of the design that we have in our data center and like a lot of people are using them and contributing to them now like there's a lot more people that are going to buy uh, hardware and so we can reduce uh, the cost uh, of the price so this is a very interesting like not only like open source like help with like our software stack but also like uh, like the actual like bottom line cost of the company around like the infrastructure and you may be aware that like right now, like AI is like the next, like the big thing that's happening. And uh, like Facebook has been in the AI space for a long time. And uh, we open sourced uh, Llama 2 uh, and uh, we're working on Llama 3 and Mark Zuckerberg this morning just posted like we are going to open source Llama 3 and everything. So like, and we have PyTorch, which is open source and like one of the leading uh, way of like developing AI. So this is also like a commitment to open source. And so to like to step back around like what is like why does Facebook slash Meta does this? And one of the thing is like first, like as I mentioned, Mark Zuckerberg, but the thing is if it's open source, then uh, a lot of uh, like when we hire people, if they're already aware and everything, they're going to like come in and like ramp up like way, way, way faster and be more productive. And the second part is one of the thing that's uh, is very tricky like in a enterprise setting is like building like really good documentation onboarding plan and like the, the whole ecosystem and one of the thing is like once you like if you want to open source something and like be successful at it like you need to do this work and so open source is like a really good forcing function to do this and this is like stark uh, in my experience like within the company the project that we open source, like the quality and the user experience and everything is like way, way, way higher than the thing that we haven't. So it's like a side effect, but it's very interesting uh, like aspect. And overall, like the, as mentioned, like what is the like company in it? In practice, like anything infrastructure related, like the policy is like, yep, you should open source as much as you like can want and like, like you're going to be encouraged. Now, anything that's product related, like we're not open sourcing anything. And so this is like our trade secret, like how are like things that uh, are actually like, uh, like giving us an edge and everything. So this is like a very interesting, if you understand this context, uh, like working here is like super cool. If you uh, like work in infrastructure and you want to do open source, yeah, like go for it. If you work on product, like don't expect uh, to be able to do it. So I hope it, gave you a good idea of like what's the philosophy 
Oh yeah. Uh, it's definitely a respectable philosophy. Uh, I open source by default for like libraries is such a good way to work. And as you said, it really forces you to be so much better. And I like of all the stuff you said, like, uh, Meta's commitment to open sourcing AI is like almost the most commendable to me because it's like I see Google put out papers and say, oh, yeah, we have the best image generation around. It's like, well, I'm never going to be able to use that. Mm -hmm. uh, but with Facebook, like you, you are giving people the tools to build the future. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting play. And I also think that like you, you, you talked about a few things that like Facebook is like making strategic decisions to like leverage market forces to do things. Right. So it's like, it's interesting how, you know, building and promoting react and, and, and putting a lot of engineering effort behind that was definitely, I'm sure paid off, paid dividends within inside of Facebook because it's like react being the most famous sort of, or like the largest market share, you know, framework that there is currently that, you know, you're not going to have trouble hiring someone to come in to build product. Right. That's like no shortage of that. Um, and, and, you know, it does a lot for, for image and, and doing all this stuff, but, and, uh, I, being that I work at Oxide, I know a little bit about the hardware side of like what, uh, meta open sources and like how, you know, that has, you know, helped, uh, in like the sort of hyperscaler space. Um, even though that's still kind of a niche space and it's hard for folks to compete there. Um, but it, it just, it, all of these, these plays are kind of interesting because there's like, you know, sometimes people do open source for like. Uh, this is like an ideological thing. We're just going to do it because we believe like open source is good. Um, and then sometimes it's like, oh, well, open source will give uh, our customers like more confidence in our product so they can view like certain aspects of it or whatever. But I think like Facebook is kind of unique in that like uh, open source is like a, a very much business strategy beyond just like, yeah, here you had this stuff, but it's just like, you know, for recruiting, for, you know, changing the marketplace. And, and I think, I think Llama, I mean, I guess like the first mar version of Llama really wasn't open source. It's just like, and like at some point, was it Llama 1 or Llama 2 that like kind of got leaked? And then we were like, actually, maybe this isn't a bad thing. And then the explicit decision with Llama 3, I think it just like, there's some interesting market like dynamics there. And mm -hmm. I, I'm sure that there was some interesting conversations that happened behind the scenes for why we should do this. But yeah, that's all, that's all super cool. Once again, we'd like to thank Raycast. Without our sponsors, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Raycast is an app for Mac that's like Spotlight, but better in every way possible. Spotlight can just launch apps. Raycast can contain entire workflows. Besides being able to do all the things that Spotlight and Alfred can do, it has a host of other super cool features that the devs have built in, and even some that they haven't. Raycast has an extension store that's just bursting with cool things that you can use it for. I personally have over a dozen extensions installed on my machine. But one of the cool things about the Raycast team is how active they are on social media. You can have a problem with your computer that you don't know how to solve or takes a bunch of different complicated tools. They'll see that and deliver you an extension. There's two cases of that I can think of. One is on Twitter, when you might want to use an at character before some text as a thing, like say you're referring to a CSS at layer or an at media query. If you do that, that'll tag the account. So one way to get around that is by using the zero width space character at the start of it. It's kind of hard to type a zero width space. So the Raycast team made an extension to insert it right at your text cursor. Raycast doesn't stop with just that. 
With Raycast Pro, you can access all of their team features and Raycast AI. Raycast AI looks like they're going to add some really cool features soon. I saw Pedro Duarte from Raycast playing around with Anthropic, a new LLM, it's right in Raycast. If you want to learn more about Raycast, head over to Raycast.com. Or if you want a more in-depth look at what Raycast is, we did an episode with the CEO back at episode 38. Want to help support the podcast even more and not hear these ads? Become a member. On Patreon, Apple, or YouTube, you can subscribe to the podcast and not listen to any of these ads. But if you don't want to do that, you can also buy our merch. Head over to shop.devtools.fm to see what we got. Would you like to sponsor DevTools FM? Head over to devtools.fm slash sponsor to apply. And with that, let's get back to the episode. So transitioning into some of the like concrete projects you've worked on, uh, one that's arguably saved millions of developer hours is Prettier. Uh, for everybody who doesn't know, Prettier is a code formatting tool that makes formatting your code not enough, like there is no questions anymore. It, it has the format and it goes for it. Uh, what a recent thing happened that I found pretty interesting was you posted a challenge, $10,000 to uh, rewrite Prettier basically in Rust and make it super fast. So could you uh, fill us in about the details about how that started and how it ended up? Yeah. So yeah, for Prettier, like uh, this goes all the way back uh, to when I was in uh, college. And uh, like in my college, uh, this was like called EPITA. And this is like a computer science, uh, like focused college. And one of the things that they're doing is uh, they have you like write like coding assignments. And so, so far, like this is uh, like pretty usual, but the twist is you have to follow a, sky, a style guide. And the assignments are graded on like a grade of on the, up to 20. And like you lose point if like uh, the tests are not passing, but you also lose point if you don't meet the style guide. So you can think of it as, as ESLints. And uh, like if you don't actually meet it, you would like lose actually two points per like a violation. And so like if you have 10 violations in like a few hundred lines of code, then you've got zero. And so this is very harsh and you didn't have uh, ESLint, like the actual program to verify, you just had a PDF, like those are the rules. And so one of the things that uh, like it made you learn is that the value of like actually like uh, enforcing the guidelines and everything. And when I was at the school, I was like, okay, this is stupid. Like, why are they doing this? And like, there's no points. But then I joined uh, like Facebook, or, like a proper company and everything. And uh, like my first uh, like review uh, was uh, someone uh, and she like basically told me like, yep, no, this is not how it should look like. And this kind of thing and like very long and everything. And I was like, oh my God, like this is continuing. Like what's happening? Like, why is she doing this to me? And then uh, like, okay, but I did it. And then uh, like six months later, like somebody joined the team and now I realized, oh, I'm actually the one asking for this. And then one thing I realized is that in practice, having a consistent uh, like style is actually very, very useful because when it's not now, like your brain has to uh, like spend more time trying to understand like how it's somebody and everything. But this is only like, like this is one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is all of the time and the situation that people are spending into this, like. For me, as an engineer joining Facebook, I like moved halfway across the world, like married my girlfriend to be able to like actually join. And the first experience I had like with a Facebook engineer was uh, like this. And it, like to me, it felt really bad. Uh, 
And also, like, I've seen, like, so many hours and days and weeks wasted arguing about, like, the, the style guide and everything. And you can also see it, like, as I interview people, like, a lot of, like, the conflicts that are happening with people are with code reviews and those kind of things. So it actually has a big impact. And so at this point, I was very convinced that, like, this was a problem that we should solve, like, as a like company and like uh, as an ecosystem. But the issue is that I didn't have like a solution for this. And like, I tried to cheat uh, like at school and try to actually write a program that would like follow the rules. And I realized, oh, actually it's very complicated. And nobody like first year or two years, like graders, like were able to actually do it. And this is where I saw like uh, Golang came up with GoFMT. And I was like, mind blown. I'm like, they solved it. Like they were able to like write a program that actually does it for you and would solve all of this. Now the challenge with uh, Golang and GoFMT is like they started the language with the formatter. And so in practice, like you didn't have a choice, like you had to use it. But JavaScript I was using at the time and like hack, like already had like decades of like people writing code and like in uh, like various ways and everything. And so like, there wasn't this strong incentive to do it, but I was like, yep, this is like, this is the play. And so what ended up happening is like, I started like passively looking at like anyone that was uh, actually trying to write a formatter like in uh, JavaScript. And over the years, I've seen like many of them uh, going and uh, all of them like actually failing. And so at some point I was like trying to figure out like why, why like passively, like on the side, I was on my project and everything. And uh, so I started like reaching out to those people and trying to ask, Hey, what happened? Like, why didn't it work and everything? And the uh, thing that like, uh, a lot of people were saying that like, oh yeah, like, uh, setting up a style guide and like convincing people is hard. But what I, the, I think like I knew that, but the thing I didn't know is that in practice, the shape of the project is very unique in a way that it's, ve uh, basically, a it's really easy like to get the 80% working correctly. And so in an afternoon, you can actually like get uh, like a full, like full JavaScript, like a, a printer. But the issue is like the last 20% are like really, really, really hard and really long and like takes a lot of work. And this is like my understanding of like why all of those projects failed is that the people working on them were not committed enough to actually go through the, the lengths of like fixing every single thing. And this is one thing is like, if you don't, now what can happen is like, oh, you format your code and like your code doesn't have the same semantic. And so now like, if you're doing this, if you're running uh, save and like it changes, I like, introduces a bug, you're never, ever, ever going to use it again. And so I spent uh, a lot of time like, uh, like shaping this, but, I wasn't like, I didn't know how to write a pretty printer. And so like, I put it on the back of my mind, like this is one problem that needs to be solved. And then uh, during a winter, uh, I knew two people like for a side project started working on a JavaScript pretty printer. So there was Peter van der Werf within Facebook and there was uh, James Long, uh, like uh, outside of Facebook. And uh, they like both told me, Hey, I'm working on this. And I was like, yep, this is the moment. Like finally, like there's uh, like two people working on this. And so what I ended up doing is uh, basically acting as a cheerleader where I like hyped both of them around like, yep, you can do it and everything. And I started uh, creating a test suite, uh, like a just uh, test suite of like 
uh, programs and I like use the same and then I started comparing like both of that projects and so every day I would like run uh, like the current set of that project and say hey this is how it looks like and uh, like this is the optimal this is an optimal and also like doing a leaderboard of like all of the like node types like all of the like syntax types and oh you, like you are like at 50% uh, and James is at like 60% like go 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 and uh, like we hacked on this during the winter break, uh, like the three of us like this. And uh, I was super excited because at the end of the winter break, I felt like uh, the two projects actually were like realistically possible to actually ship and actually work. The challenge is like both of them were like, yep, this was a good like uh, vacation project, but I have a real work to get back to. And I was like, what? Like, I cannot let it like stop and so i ended up uh, basically telling my manager hey i'm i'm doing this and so i spent the next six months actually like uh like pushing it and like every day like uh like fixing like 10 uh, like edge cases and like starting to convince people like internally like hey you should be using it and everything and so i ended up like doing this so this is like the beginning of uh, the prettier project now the question you asked uh, was more like uh what happened last month and so what, and so like overall, like Prettier, like has been like very successful now, like everybody's using it. And one thing I was like super sad is uh, on the JavaScript uh, yearly survey, they actually stopped asking this because, and the reason they tell me is like, yeah, it's uh, Prettier now is like Git, everybody's using it. So there's no point in asking. And I was like, okay, this is good, but like, I still want to know. <laughs> anyway, but um, one of the like biggest thing that uh, the product hasn't succeeded is, uh, and people have been complaining over and over, is like the performance. And uh, the in practice, like for like uh, saving on file and everything, like the performance is reasonable. Uh, and because of that, a lot of people were like, yep, this is fast enough. Like we don't need to really push for it. And they are right. But I still like every single like uh, month, there's somebody that tells me like, yep, we should rewrite it in Rust. We should make it more performant and everything. And at some point I got fed up. I'm like, yep, like we should rewrite it in Rust. And uh, one of the thing that I mentioned is like the long tail is the most important. And so in practice, what uh, like was the challenge is there's a lot of Rust projects that are like doing JavaScript formatting, but they don't implement all of the long tail. And because of that, I cannot like actually recommend them and I, we can't get the perf width. And so I was like fed up and I'm like, yep, I'm going to put a bounty of $10,000 around like, let's actually get it uh, like implemented. And like whoever can like pass the test is going to um, actually like get the money. Now, one of the, one of the reasons I did it is like, I actually don't want a Rust implementation of Prettier. I had like a second agenda behind this is I really wanted Prettier itself to be faster. And I couldn't find a way to convince people. And so my idea for this was uh, we're going to, I'm going to like basically not snipe people, showing them, hey, Rust is faster, Rust is faster. And uh, like uh, somebody is going to like say, nope, I can like actually make it faster in JavaScript. And so this is what happened. And so Fabio uh, like reached out to me and say, hey, I have a lot of ideas on how to make uh, like uh, Prettier faster. And in practice, uh, yeah, I was like, yep like go for it and he spent uh, like a, a month or two like working uh, on this and he made like Twitter like dramatically faster uh, through this. 
And so this is like, uh, like the, my two like agendas are working. One is like we have a, like an equivalent in Prettier in Rust for all of that one. And like Prettier itself is getting faster. Now you're going to ask me like, what about the money? Like, did I actually spend the money myself? And in practice, the answer is no. So Prettier, like uh, there's uh, on GitHub, you can uh, attach an open collective uh, where people can donate. And so Prettier has been like successful enough that like over the course of the entire project, I think we have like had $150,000 that have been donated. And so the question has always been like, how do we actually spend the money? And this is like one thing that's very tricky is that in practice, $150,000 like is a lot of money. But if you compare to like the engineers, uh, like in engineers or like my uh, like income and everything, like it's almost nothing. And so this is like a very interesting thing with like open source uh, funding is like, how do you balance the two? And so one, uh, one thing I did was to uh, like, uh, like my first instinct was, okay, I'm going to give like a one-time payment for all of the people that contributed. And one of the thing is like, uh, and so I said, like, I think it was like 5,000, I'm going to give $5,000 to anybody that had significant contribution to Prettier like over the, the years. And in practice, like only one person like actually like collected the money. And the reason for this is like, all like a lot of the people that are actually like working on Prettier, like our successful software engineer, like have a like high income and uh, like $5,000 while a lot of money is like not like a meaningful amount. And there's also like the guilt around like, why do I deserve this and not like somebody else? And the last one is also like uh, the taxes implications. Well, like actually receiving money outside of your main work is actually like a lot of paperwork. And uh, like now, like doing tax season, you need to do something special. It's a lot of people opted not to do it. But I was like, okay, so now like this is not working. I cannot give money that way. The other way I, I found is like I asked like the core contributors, uh, hey, are you interested in actually like uh, receiving uh, like uh, like what like you've already been working on it for like a year or two? Like, do you want to get like a monthly salary with this? And so right now we've uh, had for the past two years like two people that are getting like one point five thousand dollars every month uh, to like keep like uh, maintaining Prettier on the side, and uh, like this has been like a really well working process. And uh, in practice, we have more money than this. And uh, so I was like, okay, we're going to allocate like $10,000 for like this price. And uh, yeah, so this is uh, like the story around this. So if you like the audience have been using Prettier and you find it valuable and uh, like, please like do not hesitate to donate uh, on the GitHub, like we are using the money. And if your company is uh, doing donations also like would be a good uh, target. It's cool. I'm glad that y'all have had some some success with getting some people in, and and I definitely can relate to the both the like challenges of figuring out how you spend the money and the sort of like guilt that can come around with like oh I got paid and nobody else has and like yeah it's sort of interesting. There's something that I think about sometimes is like you know somebody who spends a lot of time on something if you offer them like a, a small amount of money normally to what they're used to making is like is that insulting to them? <laughs> like you know this is like some weird weird stuff. I want to talk about uh, something else that you mentioned, though. So, um, I, I think your your strategy of using the the Rust implementation of Prettier as bait to to get somebody to improve the the JavaScript version is really funny. 
Um, but there is without a doubt a big groundswell of movement towards Rust and other native languages for implementing tooling. Um, so we had the uh, one of the, the maintainers of Biome on recently, Biome being uh, the Rome.js uh, open source fork, uh, you know, building JavaScript tooling in Rust. Um, so how do you feel about this shift from JS to other? Yeah. So I'm actually like very supportive. Like one of the thing for like JavaScript is really uh, good and fast, but it's actually missing some primitives to be really good for tooling. So the one thing is like startup cost. And so in practice, uh, JavaScript is like fully interpreted. And so like, if you want to like start like a binary with JavaScript, you have to pass all of the like uh, JavaScript code and everything. And then you need to like start executing it. And the problem with this is like, this is like costly. And especially with Node.js modules, like there's a like proliferation of them. And uh, like one of the other thing is uh, around uh, like file IO access. Uh, if you split into like many different files, like every, like there's a fixed cost for reading a file from the file system. And so like all of this adds up. And so we had the same issue uh, with uh, React Native. And so we actually uh, like implemented our own uh, JavaScript engine called Hermes. And uh, one of the like big thing we did with Hermes is like startup time is the most important metric and not the actual like uh, running time, which most of the like VM, JavaScript VM I've optimized for is like, oh, I'm running the same thing in a loop like 100,000 times. And uh, one of the ways that we've been able to do it is uh, to change the representation of the code from a source string uh, to uh, like a very optimized thing that you can just like load and like get super fast startup. Now the issue is like uh, when you're looking at a tool, uh, this is happening uh, like on uh, like machines and everything. And right now the dominant way for doing for using this is nodes, and node doesn't have the same uh, like properties. So the second part is uh, the like one of the ways like most of those projects like in Rust are getting a lot of the performance is through pa parallelism. And right now the issue is like. JavaScript doesn't have good parallelization uh, like primitives. So one way that uh, most of those tools are doing is they basically like create a new process and then uh, you do like, uh, like you talk between the processes, but that means that like all of those processes like get the full JavaScript VM and the overheads and in practice, like the JavaScript VM have not been optimized to like run like hundred times if you have a hundred calls they optimized to like, oh, there's one running and like, this is the main one. And uh, so like, I think there's uh, going to be like, uh, I want to have like better primitives for doing this kind of things uh, like for this. And so I think with those two like big things uh, are preventing uh, like the tooling in JavaScript uh, from being like the same order of magnitudes uh, as Rust with the same amount of effort. Right now, like in JavaScript, you can actually get to there like pretty close, but the issue is like the effort needed uh, to do it is like way higher. And this is not idioma idiomatic ways of uh, working. So for example, like one of the most costly operations, like when you're looking at a low level, low level like this is memory allocation. 
And in JavaScript, like everybody allocates arrays and I do map and everything like willy nilly. -nilly. And if you do that, like you're going to have like a performance overhead, like that is the way you write code. And in Rust, like the people like are uh, very conscious about like memory allocation and like the programming language that like, gives you like a lot of tools to not do it. And so in practice, like the way you write code that way uh, is also like uh, naturally like faster. So I think this is like, the thing is, uh, I think there's a place in time where like uh, JavaScript can actually like be as fast as Rust, but we need to have like a lot more investment from like the primitives of the language and the ecosystem to be able to do it. So I don't think it's doomed and everything. I think we can get there. And uh, the Hermes team is doing a lot of work with uh, static compi compilation of uh, JavaScript and like uh, like parallelization and uh, like fast startup time. So like there's hope there, but the world today is not there. Now uh, going to like, okay, now we like, we're going to a different programming language. And I actually think Rust is a pretty good one. Like the, by default, like the performance is like, uh, like much better. And also the, um, uh, the language like looks and feel like a, like a language like JavaScript. And uh, like, it's a modern language with like, there's map, there's filter, there's like all of those like utilities that like you would see in JavaScript. So the translation between the two languages is like very similar. And uh, the other like contender are like C++, but there's a lot of like manual memory management, which is like a lot harder and like uh, with like food guns and everything. There's also OCaml, uh, which like we uh, implement flow and hack and a lot of systems. But the issue is like, this is still like a very esoteric language uh, with like both the syntax and uh, the like way it works. So I think Rust is a good target. And I'm really glad that like we have like are going to like the Rust ecosystem is going to grow and uh, like we're going to have like really, really good and fast tools for the web. So overall, like my conclusion is like, I wish it would be in JS and like this would actually like from an ecosystem perspective, like in JS be like a lot better but there are fundamental things that like prevents it from being the case. So I think uh, Rust is the, like, uh, like, a, like the really good alternative uh, for this. Yeah, it's kind of, it is kind of interesting to see how it like grows and changes. I mean, so with the, the sort of introduction of other runtimes, you also have like different sort of uh, foreign function interfaces where you can write native code that interacts with like, you know, Node or Dino or Bun or whatever. Um, and I, I think it's been nice to see that that support has gotten better and the, the development story around that has gotten better. Um, so yeah, it'll definitely, it'll definitely be interesting to see where this goes because, you know, if we think back several years ago, five years ago, most people wanted to write things, JavaScript tooling and JavaScript. They're like, you know, I, I want to be able to come to this and contribute and understand, and I want to broaden how many people can contribute. And, um, now, you know, we're moving getting more bullish on performance, which is good, uh, but also, you know, has its own trade-off. So it will be interesting to see. Um, maybe shifting gears a little bit, uh, let's talk about another project that you worked on. So uh, you'd worked on uh, Create React App, uh, which had a lot to do with, you know, the proliferation of React in general, I think, um, and definitely sort of like entered, in, uh, like ushered in a new age of spa. Uh, what do you, uh, what do you think of the current tools uh, uh, for like creating React apps? Like, what do you think 
Yeah. So actually, like when uh, we open source React, like what I really wanted was to have uh, the Ruby on Rails equivalent around React. And uh, this is like something that uh, I feel like in practice, like Meta and Facebook, uh, like is really good at like uh, like open sourcing and like building React and everything. But we were not the right like place and company to actually build something like Rails because like we use like React in a very different way internally and like tied to all our systems. And this part like was not easy, easily like factorable out uh, like to deliver like to people. And so I've always uh, wanted uh, to have like this Rails, but uh, in practice, like uh, I think uh, we started the Create React app like two or three years after like React. And uh, like this Rails like, like was not in sight. And I was like, okay, so if like nobody's going to like build a race, we should at least uh, get the like initial getting started experience, like uh, working a lot better. And so this is where like I uh, worked with uh, Dan uh, and like in the like first few weeks and like we like hacked on this and like Dan like ran with the project that I remember. Uh, and so the idea was like, okay, how do you like get started with React? like in a like non shitty way and like you don't need to like wire up like 20 different tools and everything and so i think uh, that uh, in practice the the life cycle uh, that happened is uh, like create react app was like very very useful uh, to get started and one of the things that uh, i found in practice is uh, like the the like the creating like a react application i actually think uh, next.js and uh, the versal environment like is the one that's like most uh, looking like the ideal like I had with uh, like uh, Ruby on Rails. And so I know there's a lot of controversy with versal mm -hmm. and Next and like how they like got people and everything. But to me, like I haven't been like in the React team for a while and everything. But like to me, this seems like what I wanted originally. So you're able to like go and click, uh, yeah, create a new project and like, oh, you got like all of the skeletons, all of the templates and everything. And now you like, there's a button for deploy and like, oh, you can actually uh, deploy and versal. And then you got like a website working in literally five minutes and they already set up like all of the things. And uh, it also work with like database access and like, how do you actually like uh, manage your CMS and those kind of things. Like they have like a lot of those uh, like features like more like an app that you need. And so I think this is the, like the evolution I'm seeing. And uh, I think we still need like a tool like Create React that like is bundled with React so that like, can just get started. But uh, like, I don't, like I don't expect this to be the main way people are like building uh, like React apps uh, like for the long time, for the long time. So that would make Guillermo our DHH. Nice. <laughs> I have a lot of... Uh... <laughs> Thoughts about this uh, comparison, but <laughs> <laughs> I kid, I kid. Um, yeah, well, C Create React app started a lot of my apps, and it's cool to see today that there's like there is Vercel, but there's also Remix. Remix is a great alternative to that. And then if you want to like not have as many of the frills, like just uh, Vite does the job pretty well too. So it's it's great to see that there's a lot of options today. A lot of them taking inspiration from your initial work. Uh, moving on to another subject, you said you are the creator of CSS and JS. Yes. Uh, CSS and JS uh, has been 
a controversial to topic in my opinion. And we've gone through multiple cycles now. We've seen uh, frameworks come and go throughout the ages. And I think we're definitely like in a, like it's set in now, the libraries that are there have found the patterns. Uh, so now that this dust has settled, uh, how do you think the industry is? And like, which tool would you use? Yeah. So maybe I can uh, go back to the history of like how this happened. So in practice, uh, it went all the way back to uh, when I was working on React Native. And so, as I mentioned, I re-implemented uh, like uh, the layout part of CSS. And the thing is uh, like, we, like when we were working on React Native, like in order to like build an app, like you need to be able to like draw like things on the screen. And uh, you need to be able to like define like for every single element that you have, what is the like top left width and height of this element? And the way like uh, it was done in uh, like uh, Objective C and iOS at the time was like literally every single element you would put on screen, you would have to like give it like its left width, top and height for everything. And and it was like a lot of code, a lot of boilerplates, but this was uh, like how it was done. And the rationale for this is like in practice with a small screen and like there was only one size, like you need to have this kind of control. But it was like very, very painful. And then when they added like different sizes, like the iPad and everything, like it wasn't feasible to like actually uh, like do it manually. And you needed uh, to have like some kind of uh, like layout engine. And so for React Native, like I like we uh, like need a, like a layout engine. And so I started looking at like what all of the possible ways uh, like were done. And one of the things I've always wanted with React Native is uh, I want to be able to write code that works both on iOS, Android, and web. And when I looked at this, uh, the thing is, in practice, on web is the most restrictive target because you cannot rebuild like a different uh, layout system for it. And so this like really helped my decision to like, okay, we're going to like use uh, the web layout algorithm. Now in practice for the web layout algorithm, there was a lot of issues. So for example, like uh, when you two elements are next to each other, like there's margin collapsing and uh, there's floats and uh, like it's impossible to center a div and those kind of things. And so like I was trying to figure out like what is the good part of like CSS? Like we have the good part of JavaScript and uh, in practice, there was uh, like uh, a spec that was implemented by most browsers called Flexbox, which at the time was like nobody really used and like really know what to do with it. But then I started looking at it and I'm like, oh, this actually solves like most of the problem of CSS. And so what I ended up doing is to like start implementing like uh, CSS, uh, like the layout parts. And so basically uh, uh, given like uh, an element and the margin padding, uh, like flex uh, wrap and everything, like what are the top left width and height? And so I ended up doing this. And in my mind, like I was going to also implement like a CSS parser and also implement like the selectors and the rules and everything. But I was like, okay, uh, like already implementing the layout algorithm is like a big task. I'm going to start with this and I'm going to like in JavaScript, uh, like set the values like directly and uh, using like inline styles. And uh, like we started the React Native project and like we kept going with this and we kept going. And at some point, like nobody was really asking 
for like uh, the whole selectors and everything. There was something that people wanted was like on hover and this kind of things, but nobody really wanted to be able to say like, hey, I have a, a div and like three layers down, I need uh, like uh, to change the property of something. Like if you're in full React, you can actually pass a prop and uh, do this propagation like this. And so I was like, okay. So I, I, I started convincing myself that we didn't need all of the selectors. And uh, now I was like, okay. So like, and so we didn't implement uh, like this for, for React Native. And uh, at some point we were going, like we were about to like open source React Native. And one of the like biggest uh, issue that we've had when we open source React is a lot of people got caught on the fact that like we mixed uh, JavaScript and uh, HTML. Like with JSTech, like this was a big controversy and like it tainted like the uh, the React project for like decades till to this day. And uh, I I was like, I knew that like if we are going to open source React Native and we were not going to like implement CSS and like selectors and everything and using inline styles everywhere, like there would be like the same controversy and like uh, drama and everything happening for this project. And so what I did was to like go to like a small, like uh, find a, like a small conference that was running uh, like one month or like two months before like we open sourced uh, React Native and signed up and say, hey, I'm going to like do a talk on this. And uh, my talk ended up being accepted. And uh, I was like, okay, so I'm going to make the case that like uh, putting CSS in your JS is actually not a stupid idea and uh, can actually like benefit your application and kind of things. And so I did the talk. And uh, so it was at, uh, uh, okay, I, I'll find out uh, the name of the conference, but uh, yeah, I did it. And like, as I expected, like it exploded, like a lot of people like uh, were like upset and this kind of things. The thing I didn't expect is like, there would be like a huge wave of people actually trying it out. So I was like surprisingly happy about this. And then uh, we open source React Native and like basically nobody gave a shit that like we didn't implement CSS selector because like all of the drama was around like CSS in JS. And so like from a perspective of like what I intentionally did this for, like this works, but I didn't actually expect like this whole uh, like sprawl of uh, like libraries going around this. And now this is like one thing is uh, I have like one big regret is that so far I've never seen anybody uh, actually benchmark for real the performance of uh, CSS. And so a lot of people are saying that like, oh, using Einstein is actually slower. But to me, like this statement doesn't make sense. Because if you think about it, uh, what does uh, inline style do is like you take a style and you set it on the element itself. And so like you're doing basically zero operation in between. And so this should be like the fastest thing you can do. But now people are saying that like actually like putting those specific style on a different programming language and uh, like starting to pass this one and then to compute all of the rules and find the element that are like matching the selector and everything and then like putting it there is actually faster. And so this is the thing that doesn't compute in my mind. Why would it be faster? And to this day, I've never had anybody like actually show me a benchmark, like why is it faster? And uh, like th that is actually faster. And, and uh, also an explanation of like, why would it actually be faster? And so I'm still waiting. And like, this is my call to everybody in the space. 
like please show me a benchmark and uh, give me a rationale around why it would be faster and if you're able to do it then yep like you can do it but yeah i don't know and so in practice uh for the question the original question you asked around like which library to use and everything honestly to me it doesn't matter because uh, what matters is like in practice that you put like your style next to uh like in the same file as uh your like uh, components and whether you use like um like uh, actual inline style in javascript or whether you use like some css uh decorators kind of things like like this is the like it doesn't change the shape of the program. It doesn't change the shape of your code. And uh, like, there's like minor things. So I think you can use like all of them. Uh, like, I don't think there's a major difference. Yeah. I, I love the nerd sniping <laughs> some more of that. Uh, the JSX thing is interesting. Cause I recently saw a tweet uh, that was like, uh, you like JSX. That's the part of react you like. And I was like, look, <laughs> just smacked because it's like a decade of people going JSX is the worst thing in the world. And now like newer developers are like, oh, that's the good part of React. It's just like mind blowing. I remember that being a thing too, is like a lot of people like hating on JSX. And I think the the sort of like brilliance of a lot of the work you and the other folks at Meta have done is, is realizing that like things should be shipped together. Uh, you know, it's just like, we had, yeah, it was like, we're trying to build one piece of UI and we're like crossing like three boundaries of languages to like try to stitch it together and how kind of insane that is sometimes. And like this idea is just like, no, you're building this one little piece of UI, put everything you need right there. And it's, yeah, I mean, it just like, of course it works. That's, yeah, it's been, it's been pretty good. You know, as we've talked about, you've, you've worked on some really prolific work uh, and, and, and all of these have made some pretty significant impacts on the industry in their own ways. Um, so, you know, like Prettier, obviously we've, we've talked a lot about like how that really just went from making, you know, formatting something we all talked about to like, nobody wants to think about it anymore. Uh, you know, I think like Excaldraw, which we haven't talked too much about, but like when that project came out, that was like, you know, really nice because a lot of the other diagramming tools that were out there, so it's like behind paywalls or like not really high quality or like they're trying to get to a different fidelity or whatever. So it's just like having that uh, React Native and Yoga, you know, incredibly, incredibly valuable things in the ecosystem. Uh, so what what's next for you? What are you what are you thinking about now? Like what's that that problem that's like <laughs> bouncing around in your head? Yeah. There's two problems, like the one that's like most actionable is like uh, the whole thing about Gen AI. And uh, so one of the things that uh, like last year in January, I was like, chat GPT is like, this is the best thing that ever happened. And like, but the issue is like within the context of a company, you cannot use it because like uh, it doesn't, it's not trained on all of your data and everything. And so I spent the past year uh, within uh, Meta to actually like, uh, work on uh, a project like ChatGPT that is actually fine-tuned on all our internal uh, like code base, uh, feedback group, wiki, uh, like task and everything. And uh, I'm really glad like it actually worked really well. So now a lot like a lot of people like within the company, even though like it's not even one year old, are using it like every week and like this is part of their like workflow. So I think this is less uh, about Meta, but like other people, uh, I think there's like a big, big, uh, like, uh, going to be like a big, uh, thing where you can actually like 
have within every single company in the world something like ChatGPT that actually works for like uh, like actually you can ask questions and like has the context the internal context so i think like on a big trend uh within the world and like have pushed within the company uh we're going to see this and this is like less like useful to like talk about here because like it's not open source and like it's probably never going to be open source but uh yeah and this is why i'm like really excited like facebook is uh like meta sorry is working on llama and open source and everything so we give you all of the tools so you can do these kind of things so the other part that i'm like very um like uh like thinking a lot about is all of the video editing and so in practice uh, like you're doing podcasts and you're probably like doing these kind of things and i feel like a lot of the tooling around this is uh, like hasn't evolved uh, with the age of like creators and everything and so all of the tools are still like the tools we've used like before so one example is uh, like when you're editing video like a lot of the video is about the text it's about the voice that you have but if right now you put like your like uh, video and voice on uh, your video editor you're going to see like a sound wave uh, for the text and right now like all of the ai for like uh, speech to text is actually like working really well and so uh, like there's a big potential for like ai and so same for like uh, removing the backgrounds like right now you need to install like a special extension and everything where like zoom and like uh, hangout and everything like removing the background is like now the default in every them but not in this so i think this is uh, like uh, something like there's a need uh, like for this and the challenge uh, and the second part is uh, actually the web now the browser is capable of doing video editing is capable of doing all of this and uh, so there's a new tech called web codec where you're actually able to use the hardware of your like computer to do video encoding and decoding uh, within the browser and so I've like spent uh, time like testing like, hey, is it fast? And it's actually as fast as Final Cut Pro like re-encoding a video. And so I think there's a lot of uh, like potential there uh, to do it on the web. And right now, like one thing I, I'm seeing a gap is uh, there's no good like open source tooling like for video editing on uh, like the browser. And so if you look on the like server and everything like FFmpeg is being used and like this is like everybody in the industry is using FFmpeg and so it's relatively like easy to bootstrap like a UI based on this but if you look at the web like we don't have like the equivalent of FFmpeg and we don't have the equivalent of like this kind of like low level structure for like manipulating video and so in practice what happened is like we have like uh, companies like Descript or Clipchamp that are doing like really good like work but the issue is like they have to rebuild the entire video editor from scratch and then they can do like the thing that they do and so in practice like uh clipsham decided to like go like okay i'm going to do a full like video editor and uh this script was like okay we don't have the time and resources to do like a proper video editor so we're going to focus on like uh the text to speech uh, speech to text like part and you can like cut things but I feel like there's a gap where like we have like an open source baseline video editor and uh, now like oh if you like have ideas around this like oh now you can like start contributing and like building features and uh, I think it would marry very well with uh, Excalibur where like a lot of the video editing is actually like 
um, like the animation is like, oh, you have like things on the screen and you want to be able to resize them, move them and everything. So this kind of capability. And then uh, a lot of the animation and transition are actually like 3D like space. And we have like React 3GS and a lot of shader work and everything that people have been uh, building over the time. And so I think uh, like combining like all of them into like one experience that is open source has a lot of potential. Now, like I've been procrastinating and dead, like with a bunch of other things. So I, I'm not like actually like working on it, but if you're like asking about like what's on my mind and I'm like, what is the next big thing? Like this part is like one thing that I feel like right now is the right time and space for like something getting there. Yeah, over the past few episodes, we've we've had this theme of uh, a new web technology becoming a thing, and then that like creating companies. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, if we look to Figma, we can uh, see like uh, Wasm, WebGL, that sort of stuff. We look to Stack Blitz, we can see web containers and all of that. And we're really like right at the forefront of web codecs being that. I I work at Descript, as you know. And we use them and it's still very much like bleeding edge, like Safari doesn't quite work yet, but I think we're, we're definitely on this precipice of lots of web video companies just springing up overnight. One of the things that's striking, you know, about this conversation and about your work is like you, you obviously have a knack for, for picking high impact areas of open source. Um, so what do you look for when looking for like a good project or area to work on yeah yeah this is something like i'm like the i'm very high risk kind of person high rewards uh and so this is the kind of thing i'm drawn to and uh like there's a lot of people shapes like how they work and usually like uh, and one thing i've realized over the years is like uh for many projects you can think of them as like an s shape so there's the initial like long project where like there's a lot of like research that needs to be done and uh, like there's not a lot of impact but like you need to like research and like what Andrew was talking about like uh, the web codec and like all of those technologies like there's a lot of time like where the technology has to back and be ready and then like this is usually when I come in is I find like a technology that is finally like ready and now we need to make a product out of it. And so this is my personal sweet spot. And so this is like the kind of project I'm looking for is uh, like when all of the R&D has been done and like there's usually like one crazy person that like has an idea and everything. And then I'm going to take like all of the ideas and like actually turn them into like a product people are going to use. And so I'm like starting at the beginning and like, okay, how do we get like the initial customers? How do you convince people like this is not crazy and it's going to work and everything? And uh, like, let's start it from the exponential part of the curve. And then usually this is where I, like, I get disinterested. I'm like, yep, I've like set up the thing and like it's going and like, and so like I'm keeping tabs like, yep, I want it to be that way, but I like, like uh, leave the space. And then uh, at some point it's going to like start uh, tapering. And this is like the last curve of the S. And this is where like, uh, this is where like, okay, this is like a mainstream technology. And now like you need to do yeah, like iterative uh, improvement, like incremental improvement that like have a lot of like value uh, as a whole because like the like the user base is so large, but uh, like there are like smaller changes to uh, the project. And so this part, like this is like, I don't enjoy uh, like being in this space. And so now the, um, 
the thing that makes me like very like a very weird like uh, person is that I don't actually know what I'm going to work on next usually. And I have a lot of like nagging problems that I know, like, and I'm like looking for and everything. And uh, I'm basically like, wait, and I'm always talk, like talking and what is the next like uh, technology and everything. So I'm talking to people and like what people are excited. And then uh, usually it's like, oh, finally, like something clicks. And so for example, like for like the, my work on ChatGPT is like, oh, ChatGPT finally came in and oh, now I can actually make a product out of it. And uh, for Pretio, it's like, oh, I had this long nagging thing. And oh, finally, like Peter and uh, James uh, like started uh, like working on this. So, okay, now I'm going to latch onto it. And so it's more like Zeus, like, I wouldn't say opportunistic, but like, I'm uh, like waiting and seeing and like figure out like, okay, what are all of the things that are like annoying uh, me on the day today and everything. And at some point, I'm also looking for like, what are the trends and like, what are the things? And uh, like, there's something that's going to like click. Now, when uh, like I have a hunch that something is going to work out, I spend a lot of like my mental energy and time trying to like prove myself wrong. Because in practice, like those are like crazy projects. And like, uh, like if it, like my usual thesis is like, if, uh, it makes sense somebody would have already done it. And so I'm really trying to figure out like why didn't people like succeed at it or like why like what are the things people tried and figure out like wh why did they fail and like the re like is the reason that they that they failed still valuable uh, like uh, like makes sense today and uh, or like did they actually like did not execute well and I like, can change it but I'm trying to like figure out okay what why didn't it work and then for my like personal hunch now i'm trying to figure out like what like why couldn't it work and so for example for react native like one of the big thing was performance and so this is where like uh, we spent like a lot of time like uh so jordan walk in particular spent a lot of time trying to get like a smooth uh list view like uh, scroll and like it's tried like so many different things and uh, at the end of like he spent like six months like uh in a whole like actually like trying like so many things and at the end he came out and said yep this is actually working this can work like there's no impossibility and so now we like actually like uh, proceed forward and everything so like there's this part of like convincing ourselves that like this can actually work and uh, once like all of the things that couldn't work like we have a good idea of like why like that's not true now it's about the execution and so for the execution like a lot of the thing uh, especially in the early stages is uh, what I call like set setting up the incentives. And so, for example, like one of the things with Prettier uh, within the context of Facebook is uh, like I knew that I wanted to have like one way of formatting the entire code base. And I knew that like if we have configuration, like people in different parts of the companies are going to use a different configuration. And if you let it, then uh, like now we won't achieve our goal because like now people are going to actually like fight against the goal. And so one of the things I did for this is I know I want only one. What is the way you can actually only get one? And so now like why would there be more is because like people are going to actually like configure it differently. And so I've been trying to figure out like, how do we make it so that like if people like configuring it is actually like harder than people are willing to actually invest in this. 
And so the strategy I, I, I used for this specific one is, uh, in practice for Prettier, you need, you need to have it running on two parts of the system. One is on your IDE, and uh, we use Atom at a time. And the other one is on the, your CI uh, like setup. And that is on like uh, the servers and like uh, tied to the code base. And so what I, what, what I did was to make sure that we actually, co uh, I copy paste the configuration on the integration of Prettier with the IDE and on the configuration of CI. And so like a lot of people looked at me weird, like, hey, why are we copy pasting like those two things? Like, uh, this is stupid. Like we should create a config and everything. And in practice, the reason why I did that, because the uh, developments, uh, like the, sh the way uh, shipping is happening for those two things was decorrelated. So on uh, Nuclei, on uh, Atom, uh, like we shipped every week and uh, like people had to like manually update and then on the code base, it was like based on the commits. So whichever like commit you are, like it's actually going to work. And so because uh, this was designed that way, if you were the, the one project wanting to uh, actually use a different uh, version, now you had to actually like, you couldn't hack it around because now like CI would be different than the, like the editor. So if people saved on the editor, it wouldn't work. And so one very uh, case uh, like was Rome.js, they actually started with a different config. And then as they got more contributors within the company uh, that wanted to use like uh, Nuclide, uh, like, uh, sorry, Adam, this was the internal name, uh, they would save and they would be frustrated. And it was more work to actually find a way to do a proper rollout and add the config system and everything than to actually just change the configuration to like whatever it was. And so we ended up like, having them uh, move to like the same one. And so this is like uh, the incentives structure around like what can fail, like how do you like set it up? And there was a lot of them that we did on React Native on like all of my projects. So at like one year, two years, three years, five years down the line, like the incentives of doing the, uh, of not doing the wrong thing was stronger than the incentive of doing the right thing. And uh, like people in practice, like have a, uh, a tolerance for like how much work they want to uh, involve. And so you should like, if you don't want them to do something like make this work like higher than uh, the previous work. And then you're going to get like a good system that can actually grow without you being involved. Yeah. You, you create a bigger pit of success than you have a pit of failure. And so people fall, fall the right way. Yeah. That's one way to do it. Talk about it. Yeah. So last question here, we usually ask like a future facing question that's like specific to the field that the person's working in. You've worked in so many, it's hard to really do that. So uh, we'll do it a little different this week. Uh, with the advent of AI tools, a lot of people think that our jobs will go the way of the dinosaur. Uh, I don't quite think that. Uh, but what do you think the future of our, future of our industry looks like and what our, what our jobs might entail in the future? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, uh, like, I think a lot about this and I think chess is like a really good analogy. So like when, uh, like deep blue beat Kasparov, like a lot of people were saying like, oh, chess is dead. Like now the computers are better and everything. But in practice, this actually did the opposite effect is actually like triggered like a whole new wave of people that were, and like, uh, of discoveries around chess. And now it's no longer like uh, one human versus one human, but like one human uh, helped with a computer and uh, to be able to uh, like, like play against like somebody else. And now what 
what you are able to do is this is like start thinking about theories. Oh, what if I do that? And then you can have the computer say like, oh, no, it's not working because in 20 moves or like this is going to be in a bad situation because of this. And so now, oh, so if I need, I need to prevent this and then I'm going to do something else. And so now like players are like much better because they have like this like instant tool that is able to give them feedback and like help them like uh, intuition and like do some things. And uh, it helps them actually be better. And so the way I think about it for uh, like software is like very similar. So in practice, like a lot of what we're doing as a software engineer is actually not engineering software, is actually doing repetitive tasks uh, of like, oh, like one example is like, uh, you mentioned like uh, collocating like things. Like if you at like 10 years ago, if you wanted to create a pro like a JavaScript like page or something, the first thing you need to do was to create three files. And like uh, one JavaScript, one CSS, one HTML. And now like we're only creating one. And so this is like, oh, now you're doing less work. But there's still a lot of boilerplate. Oh, you need to like add all of the imports. You need to like uh, configure like uh, whatever like style you're using. Like there's some boilerplate around this. Uh, you need to do like uh, find like what is the, the right component in uh, like the design system that I need to use uh, to do things. And uh, you actually need to type a lot for this. And so I feel like a lot of uh, this like mundane work of like, yep, I need to like uh, copy paste the example or I need to uh, like do a lot of typing and everything like is going to be like vastly accelerated uh, using AI. The other part uh, that was very interesting uh, like with our AI work uh, within uh, like the company is uh, like the more junior people are, the more they actually use AI assisted uh, tools. And in practice, uh, one of the things when you're junior is you need, like, usually, like, need to get your knowledge from a senior person. And, like, this is not a very effective way of doing this because a lot of the questions are basic and everything. And so now if you have, like, a program that can actually help you with, like, uh, the easy question and kind of things, now, like, that you're going to, like, be more productive as a junior engineer and your senior engineer is going to be more productive because they can actually start thinking about, like, the bigger, like, uh, more difficult things. And I've seen this also in my experience. Like, whenever I have an algorithm that is, like, tricky and I don't know out of my head, like, how to do it, whenever I ask, like, any AI that we have out there, like, none of them are able to actually, like, solve the problem if I'm not able to do it. But... At some point, like if I need something simple, so at some point uh, I wanted to try out like a game of life in 3D and I literally typed, uh, please write me in game of life and like using 3GS and everything. And like ChatGPT was able to like, just like build the things I wanted. And uh, so this is the kind of thing where like, I don't think our job is going to be replaced, but I think our job is going to be accelerated. And especially all of the more annoying thing that you have to do, are going to be like removed. And now you can have like more time spending around like the actual like real questions, uh, like our real problems that uh, like you cannot copy paste from Stack Overflow. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I've uh, many a time compared our jobs to being plumbers. And now it's just like, we're just getting a tool that helps us do the job better in a little bit more of an automated way. Well, that wraps it up for our questions for this episode. Uh, thanks for coming on. This was a, a super fun conversation that touched upon uh, many like foundational technologies of modern like front end. So thanks for coming on and talking about them.
Thank you so much. It was like super awesome. And I really hope, as I mentioned at the beginning, that like my talk here is like inspiring all of you to like think about like what is the next like big thing or like what are the things that are frustrating day to day. In practice, it's possible to change them. Like when React, I was like 23, like not even out of college and everything. Like you don't need to be like senior in the field and everything to like make changes. Like if you have ideas and like you're willing to like work on it and like uh, like uh, like get people like together and everything, like you can also do it. Yeah, that's an inspiring message, and I'll definitely echo that. It's uh, we we need more people trying more things, uh, and you know if you have ideas, build them. Uh, such a such a pleasure to have you on, Christopher. Uh, you know, again, as I said in the opening, we're both big fans of your work, uh, and you know, your your influence has definitely helped shape our industry a lot. And uh, yeah, again, it's an honor. So appreciate you being on. <laughs>